0: to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen.
1: My name is Bridget.
0: And we hope you guys are having a wonderful summer so far. We are midway through the summer. And tomorrow is actually my birthday. Woohoo! Happy birthday. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. Thank <laughs> you so much. I will be 56. So I'm, I always think of like the decades as you're climbing up the hill in the one, two, three, four, and then you peak at five. And then I hate to say slowly going down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I remember, you know, like when you, I don't know if you ever went to gyms and they'd have the heart rate thing mm-hmm. and you would see, they would like do this, they'd bunch it with like not on the 60 to 65, it'd be like 55 to 65. And I, I remember I'd see that be like,
0: why are they doing that? You know, <laughs> you hit that and, and you kind of go by demographics. Oh, 35 to 54 and then 55 to 60, whatever. I'm like, oh, I'm in the next demographic. Great. Okay. Yeah. There you go.
2: Yeah.
1: Like when you check mark all those little things that ask you your age group for whatever, you know, <laughs> for statistics or whatever like that. I know, but hey, look at you. Good for look you. We're embracing these ages. Yeah, exactly. I, I am get to grateful. Be, yes. And I get to be 56 in December. So there you go. We're grateful go. for every.
0: I'll, I'll every start day. it, let you know how it is. <laughs> oh, I, I bet it'll be good. It'll be good. Yes. Yes. And on today's show, we are talking to Dr. Ellen Vora. And Dr. Vora is a board certified psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher, and she's also the author of the best-selling book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. Bridget and I really enjoyed it. She talks about real versus false anxiety. And when I first heard the term false anxiety, I was like, I don't think I'm gonna like this book. But it's actually talking about your body responses. It's physical responses. So you're, you know, if your blood sugar's low, if you didn't sleep, things like that. So Dr. Vore takes a more holistic functional approach to mental health. And it's really interesting how she talks about your, like, mental health toolkit. She doesn't not promote medication, but she said, okay, it could be your meds, but it could also be the end of sleep last night, or that you're hungry, right. or as we like to say, hangry.
1: Yes, and- yes which I, I suffer from that quite a bit. But I'm trying to learn from my body's cues, which we talk about in there, this could happen to me. So it, it, we talk a lot about what your body's trying to tell you in this interview, and she really gives a lot of insight into what's going on with your body and what it's trying to tell you.
0: Guys, we want to remind you that we have a big event coming up in October and early bird tickets are still on sale, but not for much longer. They go up in price on August 1st and they're selling very quickly. So we're excited about that. We have a great lineup of women, including Leah Thompson, Melissa Gilbert, our special co-host, Mindy Cohn. We are going to be talking about menopause. We're going to talk be talking about midlife. We're going to be talking about inspiration and connection and community and how we are changing the narrative on what it means to be midlife and beyond. So make sure you get your tickets on eventbrite.com. If you have more questions, you can check it out, www.conversationswithprimewomen.com. And we are going to let the conversation with Dr. Ellen Boer start now. We'll talk to you after.
1: Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Pull Topics podcast, everybody. Today we have Dr. Ellen Vora on, and she's written a book called The Anatomy of Anxiety. So welcome to the show today, Dr. Vora.
2: thank you so much for having me.
0: In reading your book, I as someone who has suffered from generalized anxiety my entire life, and our listeners have heard it all about my anxiety, the first thing that kind of stopped me was the difference between true anxiety and false anxiety. And even the term false anxiety, I have to admit, I, it didn't sit well in the beginning until I read through and understood the intent. Can you talk about first what true and false anxiety are and the differences?
2: Yeah, and a year plus into a book tour, I realize now what a triggering and invalidating term false anxiety <laughs> is. <laughs> um, I had suspicions, but yes, indeed. Um, but, you know, I really never mean anything to invalidate anybody's suffering. In fact, I was in a, what I would call false depression for many years, and it doesn't speak to the suffering isn't any less real. Uh, it's life altering suffering, um, but it speaks to the underlying root cause. So, taking a step back, what are false and true anxiety? This is the central thesis of the book. And the idea is that even though I was taught to evaluate anxiety according to the so called Bible of Mental Health, the DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, I was starting to observe in my practice that it wasn't actually steering management. in in a meaningful way for me. And what was a more useful categorization of anxiety was to think about it as either false or true, where false anxiety is physical anxiety. It's avoidable anxiety. It's based in the physical body, and it occurs when something has tipped our body into a stress response. And it's often a pretty innocuous aspect of modern life, something like a blood sugar crash or sleep deprivation or a hangover, It trips us into a stress response and then we subjectively experience that as anxiety. And we would do well to identify that root cause and address it at the level of the physical body and we can eliminate unnecessary suffering. True anxiety, on the very other hand, is blissful anxiety. It's not something to pathologize. In fact, true anxiety is not what's wrong with us. And in many ways, it's what's right with us when we're able to viscerally connect to what's wrong in the world around us. And it's really a call to action. It's asking us to slow down, get still, and pay attention to what feels out of alignment in our personal lives, in our communities, or in the world at large. And as I mentioned, true anxiety is not something we want to suppress or pathologize. It's something we want to listen to and heed. Yeah, I know that in your book you also mentioned. Going toward that because it it seems like people just want to,
1: they want a quick fix. If they're feeling this way, they want to stop feeling that way. And you talk about, well, really, you might, you really need to go towards it. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that is the reason?
2: Yeah. And I I mean, I have so much sympathy. Of course, we want a quick fix, we don't want to suffer, but. Where with false anxiety, it's really how do I identify the source of that false anxiety and eliminate it? With true anxiety, the central question is not how can I stop feeling so anxious? It's what is my anxiety telling me? And when we can slow down and listen to that and get the memo, we can let that true anxiety fuel purposeful action. And once we're in And in that way, we don't feel quite so mired in our anxiety. It wasn't asking us to solve the problem. It was asking us to take the first step in that direction. And then once we have, we usually don't still feel anxious.
1: What are some ways you can take that first step?
2: With true anxiety, it depends on the call to action. And these can be really small and really grand. And for some of us, it's Um, you probably should take steps towards transitioning your career to something that feels more in alignment. For somebody else, it's um, you know that you want to step up and be an activist in the ranks of this cause. And for someone else, it's call your grandma. And it's really just where you have an inconvenient truth kind of bubbling just under the surface, and it's nudging you, and it's saying, hey, if you'll only pause for a minute, you know there's a course correction needed here. And we steamroll over it most of the time because it's usually a pretty inconvenient truth. A lot of times our true anxieties are something that we're like, I don't want to look at that because it would blow up my life. But there's always that idea of choose your heart. And I think it is really hard to convert our true anxiety into action. It's also quite hard to go through our lives feeling out of alignment. It seems like
0: the false anxiety is more body-based and the true anxiety, it can only, it can almost be looked at as a power and not necessarily something negative in your life. Like if you call your grandmother and you resolve issues in your life that maybe have been settling or your parent, something that, like you said, aligns you back into the direction that you feel comfortable going. Can you talk a little bit more about the body-based anxiety and things? Because I know you study a lot about the holistic treatment and eating healthy, sleeping. Can you talk about how to help with the body-based anxiety?
2: Yeah, and you raise a really good point. The algorithm for how I do this with patients is that we start with the false anxiety. That's the low-hanging fruit. It's the quick wins. And when there's a lot of false anxiety pinballing our physiology around, it muddies the waters and makes it harder to tune into our true anxiety. And so only once we've really cleared some of that false anxiety, can we drop in and hear that clarion note of what is our inner compass telling us. Um, and also to your point, that's a superpower. And sometimes when people say like, my anxiety is a superpower, it almost feels like it's a pander. Like what, what are we really saying? But I do think that there's different types of people and I like the term that Sarah Wilson coined in her book, First We Make the, First, the Beast Beautiful, where she called some people life naturals and they aren't prone to anxiety. And that must be nice, right? So some people can be our pilots and can be our surgeons and are unflappable. And we need those folks in the ecosystem of human variation, but we equally need people that can't make it through the news without feeling their heart wrenched open we need everybody in the ecosystem. And if you do happen to be one of the people who's very prone to that visceral connection to when something is not right in the world, this is not a liability. This isn't you being too sensitive. It's not something wrong with you. It is really something right with you. And I do think that um, I like the expression, it's a it's a harder path, but it's a higher calling. And I think that the people that really viscerally connect when something's not right in the world, they make the world go round. Um, They're a critical part of the ecosystem. So I just want people to give themselves that grace if they're struggling with a lot of true anxiety. To answer your original question about addressing the false anxiety, when I work with a patient, we'll use a false anxiety inventory. And it's a list of different possible reasons why they might be feeling anxious in that moment. And it's important to realize when we're in a moment of peak anxiety, and let's say we already know it's false anxiety, we're, of course, already going to have a story in our minds about why we're anxious in that moment. Our mind is the consummate meaning maker, and that's pretty much one of its primary jobs is to make sense of sensory stimuli. And so it's telling us a story to make sense of this anxious sensation. And it'll say, well, I'm anxious because of this thing happening at work or this interpersonal dynamic from the parade that still irks me to this day. And there's validity always to the stories we tell ourselves, um, but it's not actually the cause of the anxiety in that moment. And if we could omnisciently peek under the hood, what we would see is that in that moment, there's a blood sugar crash happening, an extra cold brew coffee was consumed that morning, um, we're a little hangover and we were doom scrolling until midnight. And so all of this has gotten the physiology of the body into a stress response, and that's the cause of the anxiety in that moment. And that story we tell ourselves is a retrofitted justification to make sense of what is first and foremost a physical sensation. So that inventory, I'll have patients basically cue themselves, and it's important to validate the anxiety. You might say to yourself, yes, my problems are real, yes, this story I'm telling myself is valid, and it's possible, maybe I need a snack right now. And it doesn't invalidate our problems, but it helps make us more resilient in the face of our very real stressors.
1: The connections you make in the book really, it's like, okay, that's what's happening with me that is what's happened (laughs) there.
2: Yeah, there's there's a pseudo philosopher named Alain de Botton. And he says this better than I'll be able to paraphrase right now. But he basically says it's not insulting to the profundity of the human experience to say that sometimes despair is just low blood sugar and exhaustion. And (laughs) we can get to pretty dark places from things that are Actually, physiologic.
0: One of the things that I think is important for the listeners to remember is you're not saying that medication isn't appropriate where appropriate is where it's needed, but there's a toolbox, and if you can add things to your toolbox, they're going to help you on a daily basis. And I think. Sleep is one of the top things. We have spoken to so many experts about a myriad of topics, whether it's menopause or mental health. Sleep is such a huge component. Can you talk about the connection between false anxiety and sleep?
2: I can talk so much about sleep, but I also compulsively want to go back one step and just address the medication question and and kind of paint an overview. So absolutely. And it's such an important distinction. Anytime I talk about a holistic approach to supporting mental health, it lands like, so what are you saying? Are we stigmatizing medication? And no, not in the slightest. I'm in the business of relieving human suffering by whatever means is well tolerated and safe and effective. And I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe medication. But what I think is, what we have to understand is my field is in crisis. We are helping some people and we're leaving a lot of people without satisfactory relief from their symptoms. And we need different approaches to hike up this mountain of healing. The one very limited menu of offerings that we currently have, our current medications and psychotherapy are great, but not great enough. And there's just too many people who try it and it's initially helpful but over time it's not or it's helpful but they experience side effects or they have a contraindication with another medication whatever the case may be we just need other strategies for mental health and I think there's a paradigm shift that we're due for which is that we've all come of age understanding that our mental health is the result of a genetic chemical imbalance it implies that it's a fixed trait, and it's our destiny And it really has us focused on mental health from the neck up. And we say, if we're depressed or we're anxious, it's our serotonin. And it's actually a bit myopic. And if we expand just to the evidence-based determinants of our mental health, it's broader than that. That genetic chemical imbalance was only ever a predisposition, and it's influenced by environmental factors, like how we're sleeping, um, how inflamed we are, how we're feeding ourselves, whether or not we're exercising, the health of our digestive tract, all the way to more psychospiritual factors, like do we have community or a sense of meaning or purpose in our lives? These are all evidence-based determinants of mental health. And I think when we focus exclusively on the genetic chemical imbalance, it's our least hopeful narrative about mental health. And I think if people are feeling despair or stuck, I want them to shift their focus and see that there's actually so much that we can influence in terms of how we're going to feel. So sleep is the top of that list. And sometimes people say to me, well, I'm not sleeping because it's the depression or it's my anxiety is making me not sleep. And there's validity to that but it's actually a bi-directional relationship. And what's also true is that improving sleep quality improves every single mental health diagnosis. And I find it's the easier entry point. There's seven years of psychotherapy or there's taking a couple weeks to optimize sleep. And you get better results this way. And so I focus enormously on sleep with my patients. And I think of it as, for the most part, We are experiencing what I call modern insomnia. It's insomnia related to the modern environment. And this has to do with the fact that light is what cues our circadian rhythm, or our sleep-wake cycle. And we have a part of our brain. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's our internal clock. It's not connected to a satellite. It's connected to our eyeballs. And the only way it has of knowing what time of day it is, is the light getting into our eyes. And that system was foolproof on the proverbial savanna of human evolution. We couldn't get it wrong. If it was daytime, you were surrounded by light, you'd secrete cortisol, we'd feel awake and alert. And at night, we were surrounded by darkness, save for maybe a fire and some moonlight, and then we would secrete melatonin and get sleepy. And I don't blame evolution for not entering the plot twist, which was that we were going to harness electricity and invent the light bulb and eventually nuts and eventually secession, and now nobody sleeps anymore. And so the onus is on us as the script and make sure that we're giving our eyes and therefore our brain the correct light cues so that we can have a healthy circadian rhythm and just to give the actionable strategies for how to do that it starts first thing in the morning in some way somehow we need to get actual sunshine into our actual eyeballs as early in the day as is reasonable for us and so that might mean that It's not through a car windshield. It's not through sunglasses. It's not through a window. It's the real thing, unfiltered. Um, And then the real secret sauce happens in the evening after sunset. And we evolved surrounded by darkness. And now we're surrounded by the psychedelic light show of modern life. And short of moving off the grid and raising chickens, homesteading, and making your own sauerkraut, we somehow need a harm reduction strategy. And I think the best we've got is the blue blocking glasses, which block all blue spectrum light from getting into our eyes. And so we can put these on after sunset, wear them until bedtime, and it will at the very least protect our ability to secrete melatonin and get sleepy. And I really like this kind of health intervention, something that's non-invasive, inexpensive, has biologic plausibility for why it works and can change your life.
1: And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back. Those glasses, can you like get them anywhere? You were saying inexpensive, like this? Yeah. yeah like Amazon or somewhere. I don't <laughs> know. The
2: ones I just modeled, if anybody's watching this, that make me look like I'm ready to do metallurgy. <laughs> um, they're from Amazon and they cost $8. There's all different kinds at this point. There are varying qualities, but you figure out it really, anything is better than nothing. And so um, getting any kind of blue blockers I think is great to put on in the evening. I think all the software like Flux, Night Mode, Night Shift Mode, all of that is necessary not sufficient. So yeah. you want to dim your screens, but I think the blue blockers still are a necessary addition to truly block out the blue spectrum light from suppressing melatonin release.
0: I know you You focus also on women in the book on one chapter specifically. And, you know, we were midlife women and hormones are either there or not there, or they took a, you know, it took a vacation. Maybe they'll come back later, but can you, can you talk about the relationship to hormones?
2: Yes, I absolutely, uh, spent a lot of bandwidth, focusing on the connection between hormones and mental health. And to me, what's amazing and and somewhat outrageous is that this hasn't always been a central focus um, because anybody who's ever spent time around any human being or had a period themselves knows that hormones influence our mood. Of course they do. I personally have a bee in my bonnet about the decades of women being medically gaslit when they would go on birth control pill and go back to their primary care doctor their gynecologist and say, I I think I might be feeling a little weepy, a little irritable. I might feel more anxious or sad on this. And they would be dismissed with statements like, there's no evidence for that. Or, um, well, you seem stressed. Do you want to go on Prozac? And I think that um, evidence of absence, not absence, or or absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, first of all. And at this point now, we do, of course, have the evidence that, like, duh, uh, hormones influence our mood. And with some damning Um, stats like the earlier we go on exogenous hormones the more impactful that has on our lifelong mental health Um, is something to do perhaps with exposing a developing brain to exogenous hormones so this is very concerning and I just want to have a public conversation about the fact that if you're on exogenous hormones for some reason and you suspect that it might be influencing your mood let's explore our options and it doesn't mean no one should be on it it doesn't mean Anything, it just means let's people deserve to be informed up front that this is a possibility. So they don't go years, decades not feeling like their best selves um, because they're doing something that's common. I think that there's another aspect of hormones, which is that I wish that we might have taken one day off from learning about algebra or fractions and just learned about the rhythm of the menstrual cycle. Um, It took me until maybe my late 30s, early 40s to really understand that. And now I find it such a useful compass in how I understand how I feel any given day of the month. That's, of course, before perimenopause makes this a delightful... Yeah, uh, get ready. (laughs) Consistently inconsistent in perimenopause. But I think that at least for women in the reproductive years of their life, to understand that there's a certain feeling to the follicular phase and a slightly different feeling around ovulation, and really importantly a different and crescendoing feeling in the luteal phase before we start to bleed. And it's powerful to understand that it's a classic false mood because now the meme on this one is, is it that I want to murder everybody in my family or is it just that I'm getting my period tomorrow? And I think it's also important to reframe the cultural messaging we get around this because we have a lot of choice words for describing a woman in so-called PMS. And the deep misogyny to that, we won't even go into. That's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But I think for ourselves to give ourselves grace and compassion and patience to know I'm feeling a little bit more rough around the edges right now because my hormones are falling out and I'm about to bleed tomorrow and to just be gentle with ourselves, but also to see that there is something really useful in the yin-yang of our cycle. And in the same way that we're in the follicular phase and we are much more, things can kind of just fall off of us, and they don't bother us quite as much, they do bother us in the luteal phase, and I'm not sure one or the other is more valid. I think that there's some degree of truth serum to the luteal phase, where that might not have bothered us in our freckler phase, but maybe it should bother us, and I think we have a lower tolerance for BS, and I think we have a greater sense of indignancy around injustices in the world as we get closer to the time when we're going to bleed.
1: That is, yeah, that's really interesting too. And like you said, it is, it's just the hormones play such a part on what's going up and what's, what's coming down. And, you know, when we enter into perimenopause, menopause, and when you said the BS factor, I'm like, I wonder what estrogen's role is in the BS factor because Colleen and I both have said this, that once we're hitting this age, we're just like, no, we don't have time for any BS. And, and it's like we, we there's like this filter's gone and we just don't care anymore. We don't care if somebody... Um, so, you know, we'll, we're, we're going to speak up. We're more apt to speak up than we had been in the past. So I'm sure it plays a huge role in that.
2: Well, that's the beauty of the rebirth that happens with the perimenopausal period and, and the postmenopausal period. Because when we look at primate studies, what we see is that the most interpersonally effective primates are also the most reproductively successful. So there's something about those reproductive hormones that are fueling us to keep the peace and to to try and to care about being interpersonally effective because it actually makes us a more fit mate as a female. And so we have to care about that when we're still fertile. And then when we're no longer fertile, we don't have to care about that anymore. And how freeing and liberating, especially in this world that we live in, where the cultural conditioning about what it means to be interpersonally effective has to do with a lot of suppression of our own needs and lack of a sense of our own worthiness, and um, and I think it actually engenders quite a bit of resentment and burnout. And so when we don't have to care about that anymore, we can be reborn into a world where once we were directing all of our caretaking energy toward all the people that depended on us, um, now we get to turn that toward ourselves and and really put that caretaking toward ourselves and, and speak the truth without too much regard for, but what will people think? Yes. And ladies, that's what we have to look forward to. And it's really great. (laughs) It's really
0: great. (laughs) You also talk about the importance of food. And I can say, like, as I mentioned to you, I am, I have anxiety and I'm on Paxil and someone would literally have to peel my fingers off the bottle in order to take it from me. Having said that, I'm also acutely aware of what goes in my body, how much I exercise, how much I sleep. Bridget will attest at 10 o'clock, I shut down. I don't care. I don't care if the president is in the room. Um,
1: yeah. They're going to watch her. me I snore. Mean,
0: yeah. It's like blinds coming down. <laughs> if it's 10 o'clock. It, it all plays together in, in this flow. And when you get one thing gets out of position, you're not going in the right direction anymore. Can you talk about the importance of food?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm certainly not here to take Ed paxil away. I bring up the Paxil just as a, a counterpoint, which is that um, we're so myopically focused as that is the solution to this so-called genetic chemical imbalance. And it, it does the population a disservice to not understand we need to take a holistic surround sound approach. Um, I remember when I tried to give a Grand Rounds presentation about nutrition when I was a psychiatry residency, they said no. <laughs> they said that's soft science, that's not real mental health care, That's it's not relevant. And so that was still the presiding attitude not too, too long ago and in an academic medical center. And I think that we do have to understand that good mental health is in many ways a reflection of healthy brain function. And our physical piece of flesh, like any other part of our body, and it requires certain conditions to function well. Good sleep is one of those, good nutrition is another. And I think about it as a nutritional scavenger hunt. It's like we have all these boxes in any given day. We need choline and zinc and folate, magnesium. We need a lot of different things. And that's hard to achieve under the best of circumstances. But we in our modern food landscape certainly do not live in the best of circumstances. We have a lot of foods that are pretty nutritionally bankrupt. We have foods that are potently inflammatory. The one that's, we have a lot of foods that are very, um, they derange our metabolism, they damage our mitochondria. And to me, the most damning is that we have a lot of foods that have been engineered to be hyper palatable, i.e. addictive. And I think that that ties into a lot of where we struggle with eating disorders and it's a longer conversation. But I think sometimes the seeds of a feeling of lack of control with food starts with foods that are engineered to addict the human brain. If they, this slogan says, like, bet you can't eat just one, the joke is on us, we, we literally can't. It's an addictive drug. And so I think that when it comes to nutrition, I always want my patients to look at it from a lens of how you feel, so to, certainly like disavowing all of that diet culture and that the way we feed ourselves has to do with how we look or making ourselves small or someone else, it's never about that. It's, it's how do you feel and how do you love yourself? and to have an eye towards nourishing yourself, always focusing on nutrient density and balance. And nutrient density is something not well understood, especially because we're living in the wake of decades of nutritional misinformation. And it was telling us the egg yolk will give you heart attacks and saturated fat is what's bad and calories in minus calories out equals weight loss. And this was all misinformation. And so we need a real clean slate and to undo a lot of miseducation around nutrition. And nutrient density, I find, is one of the more helpful lenses with that, which is to think about what foods pack the most punch nutritionally. Um, And so it's not always what we would think. We've been taught to think we should be eating a kale salad and a chia seed pudding and like a matcha latte with oat milk. And that's a recipe for anxiety right there. It's really more about organ meats, which have fallen out of favor in the Western diet. But chicken liver is actually one of Mother Nature's multivitamins. The egg yolks, in fact, are one of our most nutrient-dense options. Bone marrow, bone broth, um, and that's if you eat animal foods. And if not, there's a lot of different ways to use fresh herbs and spices. Um, There's so many different ways to make sure that we're giving our brain all of that raw material that it needs to function properly. And then I think that there's a delicate balance to strike because we want to nourish ourselves and it needs to be affordable and it needs to be convenient. And we need to maintain an experience of pleasure and ease around our food. And as we get more and more informed about how to navigate the food landscape, we need to not start developing a feeling like we're fearing food, or feeling like our bodies are fragile, or becoming obsessive about meal prep, making it make our lives smaller, where we then isolate and miss out on community. And so I think it's a tough task. And I do think we need to name that and recognize that all food choices should happen through a lens of radical self-love.
1: That was such a a really an eye-opening part in your book, especially when you talk about community, because community is so important in our overall well-being. And when you said in your book that if you're giving up going to dinner with friends because you are trying to follow this food plan or this diet plan, It's really not worth it. That was so eye-opening, I felt like, in your book.
2: It's not worth it. I think it's actively counter-therapeutic. And I absolutely do honor the choices to not engage with the industry of of, um, animal husbandry and um, slaughter. Caution I'll always put forward is just that if somebody is choosing to eat a vegetarian or vegan diet because they believe it's the healthier choice, that's where I think we want to loosen our grip a bit. And in many ways, um, we don't necessarily want to eat in a way that has a label because that ends up becoming a straitjacket where we think, I'm vegan, I'm vegetarian, I'm paleo. And and sometimes our body's like, yeah, but I need this thing right now. And it's not part of the parameters. And so we deny that yearning. That's actually the wisdom of our body telling us we need a thing that we're not getting in the diet. Um, But some people, for ethical reasons and for other considerations, religious considerations, environmental, um, choose not to eat animal foods. And I think that there is effort involved to making sure you're rounding out your diet. Um, I find that uh, kichidi or any combination of rice and beans is a great way to get a complete protein. I think it's pretty helpful to buy already sprouted lentils and already sprouted rice because sprouting process helps deactivate um, some of the anti-nutrients that can bind our minerals on the coating. And that used to be in traditional cultures, how they would properly prepare legumes. And we just don't do that anymore because we're in a rush, but you can outsource that and it's not prohibitively expensive. So sprouted lentils, sprouted rice, um, making that with plenty of healthy fat. And if you do, if you're vegetarian, something like ghee from grass-fed cows is great. And if you're vegan, something like avocado oil would be better. And, um, if you do consume dairy and you tolerate dairy, full fat dairy can be a good source of a lot of the nutrients you might be missing. If you do eat um, vegetarian or well, like ovolacto, lacto, then egg yolks are a wonderful source of nutrition. And, um, so there are ways to do it. And I think sometimes supplementing with a little bit of vitamin B12 is necessary. Even for vegetarians, and the party line is that that's only necessary in a vegan diet. But the studies actually show that even just vegetarians who are consuming dairy and eggs also need to supplement with B12 and that that's beneficial for mental health, especially anxiety. I
0: so appreciate the information that you share in this book for people who are struggling with anxiety because control is an issue for a lot of us. And some of us need to be in complete control. And some of us feel like we have no control, but things that we can do to help Alleviate some of the symptoms because you do talk about symptom-based root cause versus symptom-based can be really helpful because it, cl- it clears your mind and it allows you to maybe think okay I took this step now I can take that step and not putting it in the box of I'm on this particular diet or I can only eat from you know 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. and then I can't eat the rest of the day. It's like that control can be a positive or a negative when it crosses a line. Can you talk about control with anxiety because I know it's a big
2: t- topic but let's let's do it yeah so control (laughs) is central to anxiety and I really honor that first of all any of us with so-called control issues or um, you know if we ever get accused of overthinking um, I just want us to give ourselves grace around that we come by it honestly in many ways it's a leftover trait that was an adaptation at some phase of our life it was there to keep us safe And, um, this is where trauma comes into play. And a lot of times we have control issues because somehow at some phase of our life, we were in a very unsafe environment and probably it was either chaotic or we didn't have a way of keeping ourselves safe. And, um, that is stored in our tissues and that sense of the body keeps the score. I feel like it's an unmetabolized urge to keep ourselves safe. And I think sometimes we go on through our lives, white knuckling. Um, and sometimes we want to put a little focus on working through that. I think that talk therapy is not the best way to do that. Body-based therapies like somatic experiencing therapy, EMDR, something called DNRS, I should probably define these acronyms, but EMDR is Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing, I think, and um, DNRS, Dynamic Neural Retraining System. And these are really different ways of operating at the level of the limbic system to help a limbic system that's stuck with its foot on the gas pedal Basically, there was a trauma, and it thinks it now makes sense. It's an adaptation to perceive everything as potentially threatening. And so it's in a state of hyperarousal. And if you were lucky enough to get out of the dangerous situation and now be in safety, that's a real maladaptation to be in a state of chronic hyperarousal. So what we want to be able to help the limbic system know is that was then and this is now. And it's very hard to do that through verbal talking. It has to happen more on the level of the body. And, um, and then I think that control also speaks to what I think is the premier true anxiety, which is the inherent fragility of going through life in a human body and being attached to other vulnerable human bodies that we love. And I think that... This is not something that we get to fix. And so um, if we can arrive at any, this gets metaphysical really, but any relationship to that inherent fragility that has a quality of trust or surrender, or we can make meaning of the unfoldings of our lives, I think that that helps. And I certainly grappled with that. In the book I talk about this, but when I lost my mom, um, it really brought to the surface that question of, What is happening here? What do I believe in? Does she continue to exist, basically, in any form? And I really thought of it as a choice. And not everyone can choose. We believe what we believe. But I basically chose to believe that something vastly beyond our comprehension occurring here. And to me, that makes the end less absolute. It makes the edges less harsh and helps me surrender to the unfoldings in my life. And that that's a very helpful salve to my true anxiety,
1: and and you talk about too the the breathing exercises that people can do, I, you know, and, and meditation. How a lot of people say, oh, "I just can't do meditation,"
2: but really, it doesn't mean. You know, you have to, like, be all in. In many ways, if you can't meditate, that's the best because you're going to get so much more benefit from it. It's the same way that if you're not really in the habit of exercising, that first time you go out on a hike or whatever, you're really working your body hard. Um, So I think of we have this idea of meditation, which is very intimidating and prevents a lot of us from ever starting, which is that you're supposed to clear your mind or sit in some kind of nirvana state of bliss And that's not a match for how most of us go through our days. I think about mindfulness meditation, which the godfather of mindfulness meditation, Sean Kabat Zinn, describes as paying attention in a particular way on purpose. The way I think about it is that you sit and you have the intention of keeping your attention on the breath, and inhale, exhale. A millisecond later, your mind wanders. It thinks, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, my knee hurts. What should I eat for dinner tonight? I forgot to respond to that text and it got buried. And then we were like, oh, no, I lost my meditation. And then you come back to the breath, inhale, exhale, and then it wanders again and so on and so forth. And you think, I'm bad at meditating. I'm a failure at this. We reprimand ourselves. When in fact, that's the gig. And every time we pull our attention back to the breath, it's like a little biceps curl for the very atrophied muscle of present moment awareness. And it's weak on most of us, but every time we catch ourselves having our mind having wandered and pull it back to the present moment, we're strengthening that muscle. And so the worse we are at it, the more opportunity to do a bicep curl. And then the magic happens when we apply that in our daily lives and we're going through the day and somebody cuts us off in traffic or we're in an interpersonal interaction at work and somebody says something and it triggers us. And ordinarily, we might have gone right into road rage or kind of shooting from the hip with daggers of, you know, we feel misunderstood, we're angry, we judge this, and we go zero to 60 in our lives. And once we strengthen that muscle of present moment awareness, we can catch ourselves. It's almost like we can slow time and say, time out, what's happening? Whoa, okay, that car cut me off. That wasn't cool. And yet, me escalating is never well. And we can catch ourselves. And rather than reacting, we can choose to respond. Thank you so much for, for writing this
0: book. I think it's really helpful for a lot of people. There's so many people suffering from different types of anxiety and depression and The clarity and examples and help you give in the book, it truly will help a lot of people. So, thank you so much for coming on the show. And make sure, guys, to check out uh, Dr. Bohr's book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you both so, so much. And this has truly been an honor. I hope it's been helpful.
1: Well, we want to thank Dr. Ellen Bohr so much for being on our show today and talking about the Anatomy of Anxiety book, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response. I just got so much great information from there and what to to do and what to help yourself when you're having those feelings and how to recognize, is this false anxiety or is this real anxiety? And what do I need to do to face this head on if it is a real anxiety issue and how that's going to help me? Follow us on all of our social media accounts, and we're we're all over the place, so just follow us everywhere. <laughs> we'll share clips from the video. We'll share the video over on YouTube. Uh, we have a wonderful Facebook group, uh, Hot Flashes and Cold Topics Facebook group. Just answer the questions. Join and a lot and hop in there and help each other out uh, with different questions that they have about this time of life. And thank you so much for listening to us. And make sure that you rate and review and
0: subscribe. Have a great week, guys. We'll talk to you next time.
1: Bye.